Welcome to Making Sense of It All, helping you gain insight and take control of your wealth creation journey. Welcome back, listeners, to Making Sense of It All. We have another segment here today with Louis Dooley in the black. How are you, mate? Good, JB. How are you, mate? Very, very good. And uh, we've got another great episode coming up. What is on the agenda for today? So today we were lucky enough to have Jamie Hanna, uh, the Deputy Head of Investments and Capital Markets at Vanek Investments. Um, throughout the podcast, we, we talk through some really interesting and topical uh, conversations in and around ETF investing. So uh, Vanek is a uh, very large global provider of ETF products, um, and they utilize a lot of what are called smart beta ETFs. So we go very baseline, the history of indexes, and then we jump into how you can look at enhancing that passive exposure with smart beta ETF strategies. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's episode. And that's a big part of the fact that I think Vanek is probably quite a familiar or household name for a lot of our listeners because um, when we're starting our investment journey, a lot of people are starting to get on this train around the exchange traded funds and Vanek is a big provider of that. So I hope we can provide a really engaging conversation for today. Let's jump into it. Jamie, thanks for coming on, mate. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation, um, kind of talking through a little bit of uh, context around smart beta investment strategies. I, I refer to it as enhanced passive management, but there's um, a whole raft of, uh, I guess, categories or, or titles for the style of investment approach. But um, before we get into it, I'd love to hear uh, you give a little bit of context um, to the listeners about yourself and, and Vanek broadly, just to give a little bit of context as to the lens in which you, I guess, approach investing. Yes. Well, well, I might as well start with myself if that's why you asked. And funnily enough, I used to be a uh, financial advisor at Morgan's back in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, out of the Newcastle office back in the day. Um, a lot of the old advisors I used to work with are still there, actually. Um, so, yeah, that's where I kind of started in the financial markets um, around the time of the tech boom. But um, I decided I should uh, move on a little bit and uh, I wanted to really get into institutional um, trading. So I moved to London and started working and uh, trading floors at a number of um, large investment banks in London and New York. And what turned into a two-year trip um, ended up being 10 years in London and New York. Um, so I got a lot of experience there. Obviously, the GFC, I was in New York during that time. Um, so, and then after a while, I realized that, you know, it's very difficult to make money in the financial markets. It's, it, it is. And I, I moved over to an exchange traded fund um, operation set up in Europe. So I launched over 100 ETFs in Europe starting in 2010. Um, so I did that for about three years. But you can probably tell from the accent that I'm actually Australian and I was keen <laughs> to head home. So um, I ended up uh, starting at Van Eck um, when they just basically launched in Australia. And we had about just uh, at that time, four ETFs on the market and about $6 million under management. So that's how I ended up at Van Eck in Australia. Um, so I started here in 2013. There were four funds and we had, yeah, 6 million. Now we have 39 ETFs listed on the ASX and more than $13 billion under management now. So yes, Van Eck though, in itself had been operating in the US since 1958. Um, but they were in the active space they, and they still run to this day active funds. Um, so it's, it's a family run operation out of the US by the Van Eck family. Um, they've got more than $100 billion in assets now globally. 
Um, and they started launching ETFs in about 2007 in the US. So they already had a number of years worth of experience and, and they have a whole range of them listed in the US and in Europe as well. So we're, we're one arm of a global organization, but we very much run our own products down here in Australia. Yeah, great. So thanks, thanks for that uh, context, man. It's really interesting to hear, um, I guess, the story of Anek, obviously grown to a pretty significant player in the Australian ETF market, particularly. Um, and much like all the other providers on the market, just continue to release more niche and even broad-based products that are kind of satisfying a lot of investors' appetite in this current environment. Um, I'd be interested to hear, I guess, a bit of a broad-based comments on ETFs, exchange-traded funds, um, and then, I guess, more importantly, low turnover style of um, investing broadly and um, a little bit of a behind-the-scenes type of uh, insights would be great as to how they're run um, and the technicalities behind a, an exchange-traded fund. Yes. Well, I mean, by and large, they're, they're very simple products. Um, assuming you just buy a straight physical ETF, which most of them are, essentially we take money in when you buy the shares on the exchange you're buying from a market maker who puts the quotes on screen and that allows the price to trade around its fair value um, so you're always getting a quote which is very similar to the nav which is the fair value that's produced like the unit price every day um, so by having the market makers and having liquidity available at all times it differentiates themselves from obviously an unlisted fund but second of all what's called an open-ended fund, which means that the market makers um, quote on screen around that unit price, as I was saying, but every cent that comes in, so when you buy from them, every cent that comes in comes back to the fund. And then we use the money that, you know, that has been purchased into the fund to go and buy the underlying assets of, of that ETF. So if we get a million dollars in, we'll go and buy a million dollars worth of shares, for example, that exactly match the index. So every cent is invested. There's no cash. We're not waiting to see if you know we get more money. And every day, if we get inflows in, we go in and spend that money on the day to reinvest. So the funds typically hold you know less than 0.1 of a percent of cash. So we we basically optimize it so it's tracking the index index as as closely as possible. And we're able to do that very easily on on nearly every index that we do because. Um, they're just rules-based. So an index or an ETF tracks, tracks the index and by, by effect, we can just take whatever amount of money we get in and we can buy the exact amount um, of underlying shares or bonds um, to match the index at all times. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting component, that physical element of an ETF, whereby you're not just buying a, an artificial product, you're actually buying a component of the index or the, you know, um, benchmark in which you're buying that ETF in relation to. Can you give a little bit of insight into uh, the more synthetic products that are available to investors? And I guess the, you know, for us, we obviously flag an elevated risk profile um, for those investments, but um, I'd love to hear your insights there. Yeah, so most ETFs in Australia are physical. Um, and if it doesn't say synthetic in the title of the ETF, then it will be physical. It's an ASX rule. So by and large, if it just says, you know, you're buying ABC ETF, if it doesn't say synthetic somewhere in it, then it, that means it's holding the underlying assets. A synthetic ETF, though, um, is quite big in Europe. There are, you know, quite a few listed in Australia as well. Um, but it, it generates its returns based on a derivative of some description, be that a swap, which I won't go into the details in, or a future, or something where the price is derived from not holding the underlying asset. 
So they are inherently more risky because you're taking some form of counterparty risk against whoever the, the swap or the, the, the provider is on the back of the derivative. So you're right to flag that they are more um, riskier and, and they are, um, but they often give you returns to things you wouldn't otherwise be able to get if you just took a straight physical. Um, and that's why there are some synthetic ETFs around. Um, but, but, you know, risk equals return in this particular space. And if you're taking the more risk, then you're probably getting a, a different return than it, you'd get if you just took the straight physical. Sure. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I guess I'd, uh, for this part, I'd like to jump into, you know, the smart beta factor-based investing uh, that we've spoken to. And it's certainly come to prominence um, more so than just buying the index or the underlying index. Um, did you want to give a little bit of insight into the history of indexing and actually how that came about? Um, and then ultimately, um, what the what the primary difference is between an index-based ETF and, and a smart beta or factor-based um, ETF? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a really big topic. And if you kind of think back in history, most people have probably heard of the Dow Jones, right? It's a, it's a US index. And it and it was probably one of the first mainstream indices that were ever invented. And it was invented in the 1890s. And it only has, even to this day, it only has about 30 constituents in it. So there's only 30 companies in the Dow Jones. And each company is weighted based on its share price. Now, that means that if, if a share price on company A was at $10 and at company B was at $100, the one at $100 would be 10 times as big in the index. Now, that worked in the 1890s because there were, there were 10 constituents, oh, sorry, there were 30 constituents and there was no computers. So everyone who calculated the Dow Jones had to manually do it on a piece of paper every day. And to do that, you had access to share prices, um, which were easy to, to generate. And you obviously had, um, you know, the, the 30 names. So it worked well. And, and it was really the standard until, you know, the 1950s or 60s when, when, you know, computer technology started coming about. So that particular index, which is still in operation today, is what's called a price-weighted index, where everything is based on the price. But in our thinking these days, that's actually old-school thinking. Because why does the price of an underlying company determine how big it should be in an index? It, it, you know... It worked because of lack of computers. But these days, what we call a just a straight passive investment is what's called a market cap weighted index or a market capitalization weighted index. And, and that means that the size of a company determines how big it is within the index. So what is size? Well, size is just the share price times by the number of units on issue. So BHP, for example, I think is about $150 billion, right? Um, and that's its size. So in, a, a, I guess, a, an index like the ASX 200, we've all seen it, it's quoted everywhere. That is a market capitalization weighted index. And that means that a company that is worth more is bigger in the index. And hence, BHP makes up about somewhere between 10 and 12% of the ASX 200. Now, that type of index is relatively mainstream. The S&P 500, you know, a lot of indices that we consider straight passive only use market cap weighted indices. But 
you know, indices change. And originally we always use the Dow Jones and the price, right? And then we thought, you know what, that's not the best way to do it. And so they moved on to market cap weighted indices. And that's been around for, for you know, decades. However, is it really the best index? And if we look at something like the ASX 200, the top 20 companies make up more than 50% of the index. So really when you're buying the ASX 200, you're just buying a huge exposure to the top 20 companies in Australia. But for all intents and purposes, that's considered a straight passive investment. So there, there are a lot of other ways you can actually you know, work out an index. And, and some of them are really simple, but every single one of these other methods that are not market cap weighted are considered smart beta. And it could be something really simple, something simple like equal weighting. So the ASX 200 is really overweight banks and it's overweight resources because they're a huge part of the ASX in Australia. And if you're taking the bigger ones, then hence you get the returns of the ASX 200 where you know the top 20 are more than 50%. But if you equally weighted the ASX, say the top 100 shares in the ASX, you're going to get a, a fundamentally different uh, index than what you would if you took it based on the size of the company. So you would have a company like, I don't know, um, TPG Telecommunications being the same weight as BHP. Right? So it gives you a broader based exposure, but you probably get a little bit more exposure to mid-cap companies. Now, that equal weight is considered smart beta. But of course, there's a whole range of other smart beta type index investments. A step up from equal weighting would be something just like capping. So you could still use the market cap weighted where the size is the biggest, but you could cap the biggest company like BHP at 5% rather than allowing it to go up to you know, 10 or 12%. You know, so by putting a cap in, that's then smart beta. But then we kind of go down to the realm of factors. So... I don't know. Do you want me to go to go through that? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's really interesting getting a bit of a gauge as to what those different uh, factors are. I know that we use a few of your products um, that use a quality or a, or a wide moat filter. So I think it'd be worthwhile to, to dive into a few of those factors and um, how they differentiate the product offering from a traditional index or uh, market cap weighted index. Yeah. So look, factors are kind of like, I, I guess, a new iteration in, in the index philosophy. And they've certainly shown some very strong performance against active managers and against um, passive indices, you know, the market cap weighted ones. And there's, there's, there's by and large, a, a set number of them. There, there's, and I can explain them, but there's quality, value, momentum, growth, size, and, and, and minimum volatility. They're the main factors. You know, different people will add different ones in there. But by and large, you know, most academic research focuses on those each individual factors. Quality being one of the bigger ones in Australia, and you know, that focuses on a few metrics. And for quality, it's you know, a high return on equity, low, low debt in the company, and stable year-on-year -year earnings growth. So that would be considered you know, a, a quality company. Um, if you're looking at something like value, then it's, it's really about the metrics of the company. So it does price to book values, does price to forward earnings. So it's doing a lot of ratios to work out what, what's good value. Momentum is about, you know, buying companies that have a lot of inflows right now. They tend to continue. Growth is about, you know, the growth companies. Size is about getting smaller ones. And minimum volatility is about accessing companies that don't move around a lot. So there's all these different factors. But here's where I really kind of want to, want to take the conversation. And it's that 
how do you compete against an active manager? Well, different, you know, active managers out there, they actually track a factor. And this is where it gets really interesting. And you can do quite simple analysis these days where you can take something like the quality factor or the value factor and compare it to an active manager's returns. And you can see if an active manager is, you know, implementing a quality factor or a value factor. If you are after a factor, you shouldn't be buying any form of active manager that tracks a factor that correlates closely with an ETF because you're just paying excess fees. So some of the, some of the active managers out there have a quality factor on them. They charge one and a half percent, yet they, you know, basically correlate exactly to an ETF that has the quality factor. So when you're looking to buy an ETF, the factors play into it. But if you're looking on the active side of the equation, you shouldn't be buying an active manager that tracks a factor which is easily sought or easily obtained on, in an ETF. And really, this is not about active investing, but you should only be buying active investors that take real risks that you can't essentially replicate in an ETF, right? That's kind of a key. So that's kind of the factor-based investing where you have all these different factors and it's all mathematical. No one sits there saying, you know, I think this is a buy. I think this is a sell. I think this, you know, exhibits good value or good quality. It's all mathematical. They take in all the uh, financial statements of these companies. They run the metrics. They can see all the information and it's all worked out on the back end. And that's how the, you know, the, the factor investing works. But we have another step above that. And this is kind of, you know, somewhere between active and passive, but it goes a step further than straight mathematical models. And that's, that's the Morningstar moat, which, which you mentioned. And really what that is, is based on, uh, you know, Morningstar's research. And they have hundreds of analysts, you know, researching companies all over the world. And what they have focused on is identifying companies that have a moat and, and in particular a wide moat. And that means that that company has a sustainable advantage, like a competitive advantage over everyone else, which has a really high barrier so that other companies just can't enter that space and take advantage or, or reap the same rewards as this company because they're already entrenched in the market. Something like um, Google, well, its parent company Alphabet, that, that's kind of a prime example. You know, you might be able to set up quite easily a, uh, you know, a, an internet search function, but are you really going to be able to compete with uh, Google? Because they're so entrenched in the market and the advertising and everything like that is, is, is very difficult. It, it's also things like Microsoft where, you know, you either use Apple, you use Microsoft, you know, you know Apple products, you know, well, let, let's just think on Microsoft. It, most people are using the, the operating system to run it. So it, it's very difficult to compete with Microsoft when it comes to operating systems. So these moats are analyzed. And if you are given a wide moat, then that means that, you know, you have this competitive advantage. But then the second phase to that is that they then look at, you know, putting on another marker is which ones have the best value now. So it's a multi-phase factor. So one, they're doing real world analysis like any researcher would do on any company. Then they identify which ones are a moat or have a wide moat. And then they identify the ones which are the cheapest or represent the best fair value. And they package them up into an ETF. And so, you know, that like the moat ETF in this respect is is still an index tracking ETF. We still track the moat index, but what goes on behind that 
involves real people making you know, educated decisions on the back to work out what goes into the index. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because practically when you go about constructing these products, you're identifying an underlying index, so that passive index that you've referred to. So let's say the MSCI World Index or the S&P 500. Um, and then you apply that filter over the top to almost, it's almost excluding companies that don't fit that criteria, which gives the investor, in my opinion, the ability to actually, while still practically have a passive investment strategy, have an active involvement to an extent as to what the companies uh, that are being included in that product um, are. Look, I mean, that's the aim. That is obviously yeah. the aim of what we're trying to do. And, you know, all factors don't perform at all times. You know, different factors perform in different environments. Um, but that said, you know, it's been successful against a lot of active managers. It's been successful, a lot of these factors, against um, just the straight market cap weighted indexes. So yeah. from that perspective, there are benefits to be had um, at what is relatively a low fee compared to an active investor. You, you noted something interesting there, and I'd be interested to hear, I guess, a little bit of elaboration. Respects to a factor risk. Um, obviously, you know, if you think about the NASDAQ, for, an ex for example, if you buy the underlying index, you've got, what is it, about 30% in the, in the top six companies or so, um, all with almost an identical factor exposure. Um, so I'd be interested to hear um, how investors can go about managing factor risk within their, within their individual portfolios, maybe utilising a, a cross-section of products. Yeah, look, I mean, like any investment, diversification is key. And that goes for factors as well. Um, you know, if you looked at the start of the year, the NASDAQ in particular, I would not be sitting here right now having expected the NASDAQ to be up 30%, right? It's up 30% this year, and it's really on the back of seven companies, right? And it's driven the whole entire US market. Um, but if you look at, you know, the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 X, those seven companies, it's quite flat, which is similar to the ASX 200. So, you know, certain things overweight particular indices, and that's what we've seen. So the factors try to alleviate some of that because, you know, the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 are just market cap weighted indices. So you're getting more exposure to big companies. So from, from our perspective, you need to diversify on a factor. Quality factors, for example, tend to fall less in a, in a downturn, right? They will still fall, but they tend to, and they also tend to bounce back faster. And quality has been a very good factor over the last seven years. And a lot of people who have been value investing, you know, buying companies which they believe are cheap, um, have not had a very good run for the past nearly decade of value investing. So, but you would generally think, you know, oh, this company, it's a good company. It looks cheap on these fundamentals. We should be buying it. You know, that's a quite a logical way to think about it. But if you've been doing that, the value investors haven't been performing, yet quality, just looking at metrics of, you know, where the growth is, then they've been doing well. So you, you need to mix. There will be a time when quality doesn't perform and where value outperforms, you know, and everything's somewhat cyclical. So by having any factors in your portfolio, you still need to assess the factors. Um, it's, it's, a, it's like any form of investment. Um, diversification is key and you need to review your investments, you know, periodically. And, you know, dare I say it, factors are exactly the same as, as that. As a bit of a, I guess, 
internal reflection from a Van Eck perspective, how do you guys go about identifying uh, factors to be incorporated into your product rollout um, roadmap? Yeah, so designing the ETFs is probably the biggest, you know, part. You know, running the ETFs once they're operational is, is you, know, you know, far easier than coming up with the idea. So looking into the the indices that are available before we launch an ETF is, is months, if not years of work, where we actually have to go and analyze all aspects of it, how it performs in all environments, where its weaknesses are, where its strengths are, and then work out, well, which number of these factors work together, which index provider offers that. And so we come up with, you know, a whole series of, of ways that we can produce, you know, something that works for, for the end investor. Like take quality, right? The quality factor, we have the Qual ETF, which has been highly successful, you know, a lot of outperformance in that over the years. It's an international fund, buys, you know, invests in international markets and nothing in Australia. But when you look at the quality factor in Australia only, just on the ASX, the quality factor doesn't work very well. And it doesn't work very well in Australia because we're, the Australian market is, as I've said earlier, considerably overweight banks and financials and big resource companies. So it distorts your ability to actually implement the quality factor in Australia. So this, I mean, that's just one of many things I could highlight. So knowing what you're getting into and knowing how it works is one of the key factors. So we have an emerging market um, factor-based fund, but it's multi-factor. You know, when, and the reason for that one is, so th this is interesting and it's more of an aside, but internationally, a lot of the international markets tend to perform the same on developed markets. You know, the USA, Canada, Western Europe, Australia, you know, when they have a crash, they all tend to have a crash. When they are doing well, they all tend to do well. So the quality factor works very cleanly. In Australia, I said there wasn't enough companies and enough sectors for it to work. But when you look at emerging markets, things like um, China and South Africa and Brazil and you know, all the emerging market countries, India, they don't tend to move in the same direction. So when you look at the quality factor within the emerging market space, it doesn't, it doesn't run true either because... Brazil might be doing extremely poorly while India's booming. The countries are not as correlated as what they are in the developed market. So we had to take a multi-factor approach with emerging markets. Um, we had to not do a quality factor just for Australia. And we found it worked extremely well when looking at developed markets. So this type of thing is going on in the background all the time. when we're looking to, to do our product research and analysis. So everything is, is done at this stage. There's a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of, I guess, uh, searching for the correct product before we launch it. I mean, I'm cognizant of time, so I, I'd like to kind of wrap up the uh, the episode and I'll put you on the spot a little bit in terms of what factors you're looking at over the next 12 months or over the next little time period and, and what, you, what you are favourable on and what you think should provide outperformance for investors. Look, I, I have to stick to um, equal weighting in Australia. I think being overweight some of the big banks and uh, big banks and, and the resources is always a risk to a portfolio. Um, so I think in the ASX, I think, you know, equally weighting is a, is a stronger factor over the next so many years. Um, looking globally, um, it's, it really is a mix of value and quality. Um, I think value, as I said, hasn't been doing too well. Um, I think 
companies that are underpriced and have good fundamentals should do well over the next couple of years as well. I mean, it, it's, it's always difficult to say and you can never, you never be 100% sure. Quality has been an outstanding performer and it will do well if the markets pull back a little bit in 2024. Um, I think a lot of people thought markets going to pull back in 2023 this year and they haven't. So I think next year, it'll be a mix of quality and value um, as a factor. Um, and, and, that's, and that's really based on, you know, thinking that we're going through a cycle. You know, we've been through an interest rate cycle. Um, you know, our interest rates peaking, you know, there could be one or two more in Australia. It's hard to say. Um, but we will come to a point in the next year where they're going to, they're gonna, you know, hit a, hit a point where potentially we've gone too far or we need to, to look to lower them. So with the longer, with the higher rates for longer, those two factors should be um, the ones to look at globally. Um, which is the the quality and value. There's a lot of academic research behind it all. Um, I think if you look at some of the other factors um, like growth, it's it's also been particularly strong. Um, but looking at momentum, it, it's hard. You get short bursts in, in momentum. Um, it's hard to continue the momentum when you're buying a momentum factor. It's a better factor for trading, for buying and selling and not buying and holding in a portfolio. Um, and then minimum volatility is good when the markets fall. Um, but you don't know when they're going to fall. Um, so it, it can be a, a, a small hedge um, against a fall in the market. But look, I mean, you don't ever know when it's going to fall. Um, so look, I, I, I think being a mix of equal weight, quality and value at the moment is, is kind of uh, the best diversification in the portfolio if you're going factors. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think it's what's interesting is the transition in the actual market composition. And the largest companies are almost, their growth by nature, or but they have definite quality um, as well as to some extent value characteristics incorporated into those into those businesses. So certainly been a transition over the last um, you know last couple of years particularly, but obviously it's been a multi multi year transition. But um, mate, look, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope the listeners got a heap of value from that, and um, looking forward to getting it getting it out there. Look, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, and hope you got something out of this. The information contained in this podcast should not be interpreted as advice. It is general in nature and does not take into account your individual financial situation or needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial decision, we recommend you consult with a licensed professional advisor to consider your unique circumstances. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. 